Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. We always encourage you to download the app, the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app that you could um, download and you could share it with your friends and you could have access to all of our station's content. And where you find Joe and I primarily right now is at The Frontline TV, The Frontline TV on YouTube. Like I said, for now, until they shut us down, of course, like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff, help us out however you can. Now, today... This is an interesting conversation, okay? And all you people out there at the Veritas Catholic Network are going to understand what I mean by that when I tell you what we're going to be talking about. Um, but we're welcoming back to the program two supremely knowledgeable people, uh, Michael Graney and Dawn Brohan. And we're going to be talking about the moral basis for money. Now, as Catholics, we need to uh, we need to acquire as much knowledge as we can. Certainly, knowledge of the faith is the most important thing, okay? But we need to have knowledge of the world around us. Money is something that we take for granted, okay? But do we really understand what money is? When you, have, when you have a dollar in your pocket and you're using it, do you understand what it is? Now, I'll be honest with you. I know I could buy something with it, but it's deeper meaning I don't know. I don't know what the moral basis for money is. So Joe and I are going to learn something today, too. And hopefully you will. And Dawn and Michael are the ones to teach us. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you to get started. Uh, we always start with the prayer. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we come, but for you we stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Don, we'll, we'll begin with you. I mean, there's always the, the old saying, you know, money is the root of all evil. But as Joe said, today we're going to talk about the moral basis of money. Um, from a Catholic's perspective, I mean, we were always taught that money is an evil. It's how you use it that is evil. You could either use it for the good or for the bad. Um, what's your thoughts on the moral basis of money? Well, first, thanks so much to both of you for having Mike and myself on your show. We enjoyed it so much the, the last time we spoke. Um, first, I just want to comment on, and you said a little bit about this uh, phrase, uh, money, for example, money is the root of all evil, is uh, the way most people remember the slogan. And it's really, uh, it's not money is the root of all evil, it's the love of money. And the key thing, when you ask what is the moral basis of money, it's, well, first of all, it's a tool that human beings create, and they can only create it in a social context. If you have what you need and you're all by yourself in the forest, you don't have to exchange money. You don't have someone to <clears throat> exchange uh, things of value with each other. So um, the key 
to understanding money is seeing that it is the dignity and empowerment and full development of every person. That is the moral basis of money. It, it is an economic tool. Um, it enables us to exchange what we have with what someone else has and to come to an agreement. So um, one way of looking at money is that it's a yardstick of value so that when we exchange in the marketplace or amongst ourselves, each party feels that they're getting um, something of value in exchange for what they're giving. So I think the key thing, it's the human being is the moral basis. Every human being and money is the social tool that we all must have access to in a feasible and logical way. When I say feasible, something of value must stand behind whatever form of money we're using. Okay, so but, uh, I'm sure we're going to get into it, but that's is that current? Is that our current monetary system? Is that is that reflected in our current money monetary system or no? Uh, my understanding is, and again, I'm, I'm a neophyte with this. Um, our money is based on trust. Used to be gold. <laughs> I, I, if I remember correctly, it used to be gold, but not not any longer. It's just simply based on trust. Am I right about that? You trust that that dollar is worth that has a certain amount of value, and I could trade it for goods and services that that I I want or need. Am I correct in that? Okay. Well, actually, uh, and I hate to say this, no. Okay. Uh, no, no, that's fine. No, please that's I'm go. Michael, please. <laughs> Well, you know, the expression good is gold. Well, not exactly. Money has always been based on trust. Money is, it, it's a social tool. It's its not really, uh, well, actually there are persons and things. So I almost said money is not a thing. Money is a thing, but it's a derivative of, you know, actual things. Mm -hmm. it, it's an abstraction. It's an idea. It's not really... The, the main problem with virtually every monetary system in the world today is that they think money and credit is a commodity that you buy and sell and that you need in order to be able to carry out transactions. The real essence of money is based on, uh, well, Adam Smith called it the first principle of economics. And this is stated very simply in the wealth of nations, this isn't the source of it, I mean, it goes back thousands of years. Consumption is the sole end and purpose of all production. Why produce something if you're not going to consume it? And of course, obviously you can't consume something that doesn't exist, that hasn't been produced. Well, take that one step further. And this is what Jean-Baptiste Say, an early, uh, a near contemporary of Adam Smith, called his law of markets, which he, of course, did not really come up with, but, that's, but he's the one who best articulated it. There's only two ways to get something to consume. Either you produce it yourself, or you produce something to trade to someone else for what they've produced that you want to consume. Now, what is money? Money is the means, the medium by means of which I exchange what I produce for what you produce. And it, this is the essence of contract. If, if you took, you know, in your business law course, if you took that, or if you flunked out of law school or something, uh, a contract consists of three elements. Offer, I would like to uh, give you this offer 
in exchange for that. Now, is the thing I'm offering a value? Then you, that brings in the second element of contract, consideration. Consideration isn't a nice feeling. Oh, I'm being considerate of you. No, it means something of value that induces you to enter into an agreement or contract with me. Now, if you like the consideration and you like the offer, then you accept it. So you have a contract consists of offer, acceptance, and consideration. And now you'll pass the, your law exam here. Nice. Uh, yeah, of course. I've never hey. passed the bar, Michael. Uh, actually, neither have I. I I've only I've, I've, I always find myself in them. John Brohan and Michael Green. I fell into that one. Thank you. We're talking about the moral basis of money. Michael, please continue. Okay. Uh, now, what money is, is the mechanism by means of which it's a social tool that two people create between themselves to say, what I'm exchanging is the... To, what I'm giving to you is the equivalent of what you're giving to me. And as Aristotle pointed out a couple thousand years ago, a new, uh, one further advance in money is called currency. We need something by means of which we can each measure, as Don noted, what we're exchanging. So I'm exchanging chickens for your pigs or my apples for your potatoes but what do we measure them in terms of? Because if we have to carry on trade by trying to figure out each and every time what we're doing, we're, it's going to take up most of our time just bargaining. So what we do is we pick a third thing in terms of which we measure the value of all the other things we're dealing with. In ancient times, it was cattle. Cattle are great. Everybody needs an ox or something to pull your plow or your wagon or whatever. So in the ancient world, cattle were, were the most common form of, of unit of value, the currency. Then you went to lumps of metal, usually bronze, because bronze was very useful. In fact, there was a, a, a magnum leap forward from the Stone Age to the Bronze Age. But somebody decided that, well, that's a little bit cumbersome. Why don't we use these little lumps of gold and silver? And I won't get into all that, but when you mm -hmm. said money used to be backed by gold, well, very little of it used to be backed by gold, especially in the modern age. What it was, was we measured value in terms of gold. So that the, the dollar, for example, until about 1933, from about 1878, was defined as about 120th of an ounce of gold. Okay. That did not mean that every dollar bill out there was backed by one twentieth of an ounce of gold, but whatever it was backed with was valued in terms of one twentieth of an ounce of gold. Okay. There are three things that a gold standard can be. The Austrian economists think that, oh, a gold standard means that all the money is gold and nothing else. Well, that's, there's not enough gold to cover that. Uh, or you can say that Everything is measured in terms of gold, and the official currency can be converted into gold anytime you want. Or the third thing is that we just measure it in terms of gold, but that doesn't mean you can convert your currency into gold. It's just a handy unit of measure that we're using, Okay. which is a very insecure way of doing it because people say, well, if you say this is worth so much in gold, how come I can't get gold for it? Right. <laughs> It's like you take it down to the local bank and say, uh, ounce of gold, please. Or 20th of an ounce of gold. 
Don't bro, no, one bro point on Michael Rainey joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. We're talking about on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, the moral basis of money. Joe Resinello. I'll just tell you a quick story. I was uh, an auditor for 12 years, and I actually audited the precious metals uh, group in Morgan Stanley. I'm not with them, so I'll mention their name. And I went into a room in Delaware full of silver and gold. Amazing. You would never believe such a thing exists. And you would drive past it. It was under the ground. Amazing. One of the most unique experiences of my entire life. Um, they actually made you wear a lab coat so you couldn't put anything in your pockets when you went. <laughs> Just a little side note. Amazing. Uh, so there is gold and there are silver bars somewhere in Delaware. I won't tell you where. But I want to get to the Catholic view of money. And, and I want both your comments on this. Basically, you know... Um, there's like Catholic guilt with money. I've, I've always had that. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I wasn't raised. We weren't poor. We were blue collar. My dad was a barber. So when I started to make a couple of bucks, I'm not, I'm hardly rich, but I, I you know, I work in the finance field. Um, I actually felt guilty about it. I'm going to be truthful with you. Um, it, it's like built into me. And, you know, as a Catholic, um, you know, you're, you're taught that like you, 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 you got to take care of your needs, take care of your family. You have to educate your kids. You have to live. But then there comes a point where you got to do something for the betterment of others. That's a Catholic idea. It's it's money is a tool. Nothing more than that because we're not here to – our house is in here. It's in heaven. Um, I'm interested first, Dawn, in your you know ideas on that, and then, Michael, um, yours. Sure. Well, I think you – reiterated one of the points we've been making that money is a tool and if we accept that the moral basis for money this is the moral basis we're not necessarily talking about economic value and how you you know what stands behind the money but really what is it for if we see it as a tool for enhancing the dignity empowerment and development of every person and what that relates to is how we structure our common good all those institutions Institutions, including our monetary and tax system, um, it's the corporation, uh, property laws, all of those need to be looking or pointing to that moral basis, that moral foundation of each human being as um, unique, uh, a creation of God, if you're a religious person, and, uh, and also a member of society. And we as social creatures, can't exist without other people. Um, so if we look at money in that light and how we use it in our lives, if it's directed towards uh, developing more fully as human beings, becoming more virtuous and extending what we do in our, our abilities and powers to create a more just social order or to make sure everyone has access to the common good, meaning every social institution, then as you know, to the extent it's serving that, and to the extent that the way you earn money is honest, and it's always backed by this idea of production, I think, and it's, you know, the element of trust comes in that you're not, you know, passing counterfeit bills, then, you know, it, it, I think it's understand, and most people don't see it as a tool. I mean, they see it as a way to buy things they want to consume, and that's fine. You know, we are consumers, and we should also be pro producers. Um, but keeping in mind that 
you know, the day you die, you're not going to be thinking about your heaps of, you know, dollars and gold. You're, you're going to realize you've come to the end of your, your natural life. What is it you've left behind? So unless it is adding to that, uh, that moral foundation, making that possible for others coming after you, then I would say, yes, you didn't use money in the best way that you could have. Yeah, Michael, Michael Green, I'm going to kick it over to you, Michael. Okay, well, first thing, how come your best experience as an auditor, <laughs> most unusual, <laughs> was going through gold and silver, and I was a medical center auditor, and I got to a morgue? Uh, there you go. There you go. I got to see the gold. Cadavers. <laughs> anyway, I think that the, you know a lot of what you call the Catholic guilt about money is rooted in a in a fundamental misunderstanding of something Jesus said. You remember the incident where the rich young man comes up to him and says, "What must I do to gain eternal life?" And Jesus's answer was immediate: obey the commandments. And then it said. Right there, and that finished it right there. But then it says the young man wished to justify himself, or because he did this, so that, depending on which gospel you're reading, they're all pretty much the same, which sounds really bad. No, they're all pretty much in agreement, I should say. Uh, he says, But what more could, could I do? And Jesus says, Oh, well, if you want to do more, then go and sell all you have and come and follow me. And then it says he went away sad because he was very rich. I wish I could make that decision. Boy, gee. Uh, so, and then he said, and then the apostles say, oh, if, uh, and no, no, excuse me. Jesus said something to the effect that, see how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the apostles who have been raised in a culture which pretty much trained them to think that, oh, the rich are favored by God, said, wow, if it's that difficult for the rich to enter heaven, what's the, what, how much hope do the rest of us got? And uh, basically, Jesus said that with God, all things are possible. Now, a lot of people say, oh, that proves that the rich are damned automatically. Right. That's not what Jesus said. If that's what Jesus meant, then he lied to the young man. So you're going to call Jesus a liar? Not, I'm not going I to. Wouldn't I wouldn't do it. <laughs> not a good idea to call no, us. I, I want to expand on that. I want to expand on that a little bit because I think it comes again. Uh, I went to a Jesuit college, as Dawn did. Um, on our library, uh, the sign it said, "Those have been given much, much as expected," and that's sort of how I think of this. God says, "Okay, Joe, you know you've been given an education. You know you're not rich, but you're comfortable." there is a responsibility that goes along with that. And I think it's easy for people like the four of us. I mean, we're not rich, but we're all comfortable. Uh, you could rationalize things. And I'm going to give you another auditing story. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm interested in your comments and I'm not picking on Notre Dame, Michael. I know you went there, <laughs> but this individual went to Notre Dame. So I was actually doing, I traveled for three years uh, throughout South America. Now, there's a very big gap between the rich and the poor. The people who are rich are extraordinarily rich, and the people who are poor are extraordinarily poor. And they work for the people who are rich, and they're not paid a lot. So I did an audit in Paraguay, and there was a gentleman who went to Notre Dame. It was a family. Um, their last name was Kent. How they wound up in Paraguay, I don't know, but they were there and they were wealthy. And I was talking to this young man. And I said, 
he was like, I have childcare. I have a live-in nanny. And this is 20 years ago. And he said, I pay her, no lie, $50 a month. And I, his name was William. I was like, William, you pay this woman. 50, he makes an American salary in Paraguay. You pay her 50 bucks a month? He's like, that's a lot of money for here. And I, I mean, I don't live in Paraguay. I was passing through, but I couldn't imagine that being a lot of money. I think that's the problem sometimes because it's easy to lose sight of other people and we have a responsibility. I mean, I, I'm not judging William. I don't know him. And, but to me, that's unjust. First Dawn, your thoughts on that. And then Michael. Right. And I think what you're pointing to is the injustice in the money system. And we can look at um, national money systems, uh, you know, the global money system, the interaction. The key problem is that when someone and most people are dependent on having a, a wage to live, um, that's going to be obviously dictated by the market. And so maybe that's what Mr. Kent was referring to. He may have been paying five times more to this person in wages than what was typical. The problem is it's not looking at how money can be used to enable every person to become an owner of the, the uh, advanced technologies and the corporations that use these on a global basis. And the, the problem with our money system right now is that you have to have money in order to get more money, which basically means if you are rich, you have assets that can serve as collateral for any loans that you use to buy more capital. And the, the importance of capital is that it is an income producer for the owner. So this, the, the, the woman he was paying, he may have been very generous in terms of local wage rates, but it was not empowering her to become an independent, economically independent person. So when we talk about justice in terms of institutions and what we can do, and we should be concerned about every human being wherever they are on this planet. You know, we can't stop at our borders with our concern. So this will be a gradual process. But if we recognize that money can be a liberator in just in terms of your economic freedom, but it, it has to be tied to something more than your labor, because not all of us can do work. I mean, there are people who are too young or too old or infirm. But all of us can become productive through our ownership and contribution of our capital assets. How we get that, though, if it's based on the idea that you must accumulate savings in the past, that means don't consume, pile up your heap, then you go and you buy new capital, that is going to be just impossible for 90, you know, let's say 95% of the human population today. They won't be able to accumulate enough past savings. So by understanding, and this Mike will get into this, of the different forms of money, if you understand that capital loans, if you're investing in something that is projected to produce a profit, that capital can pay itself off, pay its own loan off, and thereby become a source of income to the, the borrower. So the key thing, if someone is going to be just, they have to look at how can we empower each person? What is it? What institutions 
are going to affect that person's opportunity. So, you know, that I think in terms of justice, when, when you think of it in terms of a social construction of our institutions, that's how I would look at it. Michael Graney, your your comments on that, um, and very quickly uh, for those out there at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, who are being who are just joining us, we're being joined by Michael Graney and Dawn Brohan. And remember, if we're talking about the moral basis for money, you might say to yourself, "Well, who are these two? Well, I'm going to tell you. Michael is the um, is a board member and director of research for the Center for Economic and Social Justice (CESJ), and Dawn is a co-founder, board member, and director of communications for CESJ. Joe Rasinello, I think that means. They know what they're talking about. I would think. Graney, Absolutely. Think a lot more than me, that's for sure. <laughs> but I do, when we come back, we, we're, we have a few minutes, but when we come back from the break, I want to specifically talk about ownership and what you mean by that, okay? But Michael, please comment uh, if you would. Well, actually, what I can say is bridges what I said before, you know, about the people who want to just give away money and think that that's justice. And then what Dawn said about getting access to you know, money and credit to be able to uh, become an owner yourself. Uh, the great Aristotelian Jewish philosopher Moses Maimonides gave eight orders of charity. The lowest form of charity is just give them money. The highest form of charity, which starts to get into justice, is to give someone a loan to set him up in business so that he can become independent and become charitable himself. Now, the whole idea here is, I mean, the Kent could have been very just, in fact, more than just, just and charitable if he paid that woman more than the market rate for childcare and $50 a month for Paraguay was probably more than the going market rate. It very well could but, have been. But it was not socially just because to be socially just, he should have gone and organized with others and said, we have to figure out a way to enhance this, these, you know, these child caregiver and actually everyone else's income so that they're not dependent on these low wages, which are a pittance according by our lights. But should we really pay them more, which is un, could be unjust to us? Why should we pay more than something is worth on the market? But what we need to do is arrange it so that the child caregivers and everyone else can become capital owners. And that way, the market rate for childcare can be whatever it is, but people will still have an adequate and secure income from their capital ownership. And, and again, that, that that's what we want to talk about uh, a little bit more when we come back from the break, because I, I, like, I wonder, like, what do you mean? Own what? Like, I could see somebody out there saying, own what? Like, what? Okay. Um, I go get a, a, a some form of capital infusion from a bank, be it a loan. You mentioned the loan, Dawn Brohan. Um, what am I buying? Like, 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 I think ownership and how that, how owning that thing, whatever that thing might be, and then how I derive, let's say, uh, or 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 could uh, begin to create wealth for myself through the ownership of that thing. Okay, what what form does that take? I think that's that's an interesting question. People. I know me. I, I mean, I want to. I want to hear a little bit more concretely. That's what we're going to talk about when we come back from the break. Very quickly, uh, Dawn or Michael, whichever. Where could our audience at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network uh, learn more about your organization, what you're doing, contribute, whatever the case may be? Uh, Dawn, if you would. Yes, um, they can go to our website at C E S J. That's Charlie Ed Sam Joe. 
org. And there's lots of information. We love to have people contact us and um, talk with us. Um, we have various venues where people can uh, join in on our community forum every month. But the CESJ.org is a good place to start. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to come right back with Michael Graney and Dawn Brohan. We're going to be continuing our talk about the moral basis of money. I want to talk about uh, ownership when we when we come back, if that's okay. Um, and you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello. When you're talking about money, Joe Resinello, you are way in the breach, brother, on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial. Stick around. we got another great segment with Michael and Dawn. Listen to all five of our original Veritas shows. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank, where Bishop Frank Caggiano talks about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. You can hear The Frontline with Joe and Joe every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talks to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock, tune in for the only late-night talk show on Catholic media anywhere. It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. And at noon on Friday is Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Right after that, at 12.30, you can hear the Focus on Veritas, where we put the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello way in the breach with Michael Graney and Dawn Brohorn from CESJ, Center for Economic and Social Justice. And no, uh, many people out there here, oh, social justice. No, don't, not the media's form of social justice. We're talking about authentic social justice. Church has a teaching on this. The Catholic Church has teaching on the social justice going back to Pope Leo XIII and probably even before him. Uh, so, no, we're going to talk about that. And it's an important topic. I want to talk about ownership, but I don't want to be greedy. Uh, I want to so hand it over to Joe Rasinello first to see where he might want to go uh, before then. Let's talk about corporations. You hear these terms. We have values. We have ethics. Well, I've worked in the corporate realm for 25 years. I haven't seen a lot of that, and I've been on the wrong end of it many times. Um, it seems to me that every time a company goes public, um, the humanity is gone. It is gone. You're a line on a spreadsheet. Uh, when there are cuts, when there's management changes, you are out. You are rift, at least in America. There is no like I know in Europe they have like workers councils, even in corporate in the corporate sphere. Not here. Employed at will. Goodbye. And uh, and, and when you have a family, unemployment doesn't cover it doesn't cover it. I mean, you got bills, you got a mortgage, you know, you got medical benefits, the whole nine. Um, the, the corporate machine is out of control. What are your thoughts on it? And how can we improve upon it first on? Well, first, we need to understand that the corporation itself is another social tool. Um, often we hear about, you know, the evil corporations and, um, and how they're exploiting workers. 
And we need to remember that they are a mechanism by which you can bring together labor of all forms, capital of all forms, produce and distribute goods and services on the marketplace, generate a profit, and it, it has its expenses, labor and other things. But the big problem with the corporation is that it's, while you may have some publicly traded companies with, you know, maybe a million shareholders, it really, the ownership in it is very concentrated in a very small number of people, which gives whoever has that kind of economic power is able to control uh, who is hired, for example, who the CEO will be, uh, corporate policy, and the other shareholders, minority shareholders, have very little power with respect to whoever is able to really control the corporation. And that carries over to, for example, one of the rights of ownership of private property is the right to the full stream of income from what you own has produced. So in a corporation, you own shares of the corporation. The corporation it, it is this legal person that uh, owns things, capital, it may own structures, all, all sorts of things, but it is owned by shareholders who own pieces of this entity, which is uh, brought together all these different productive things, people and things. So with ownership of corporations being so concentrated and the fact that it is even depriving existing shareholders of their full property rights, because if they um, were receiving their property rights as they should, you wouldn't have this question of how much of a dividend or how whether or not to pay out a dividend. It would be if there are profits, that by right must flow to the owners. And that brings another question of how the corporation will finance its growth. But just in terms of property rights, right now, the way corporations are run violates just the, the rights of the shareholders. Now, when the workers are basically tools of the, the corporation, that they're not full participants through ownership, an ownership connection, then they are essentially a commodity that can be bought and sold and you know got rid of at, at will. So one of the, the key things that we would say in terms of making the corporation, which is a very useful thing, it, as you know, Joe, um, it protects the individual's personal assets from being seized if the corporation doesn't make good on a loan, you can't take someone's home for it. It's you, you would seize the assets they have in the corporation. So this is a very useful ability. But unless that tool becomes equally accessible, the ownership of that tool and the control of that tool becomes equally accessible to every person, you automatically have an unjust situation. You've cut off uh, an important means of participation in the economic sphere and th thereby also the political sphere. Dylan, but you're talking primarily about publicly traded companies, correct? Well, it it uh, you have publicly traded companies. You also have privately held companies, and the, the, largely most are owned in a very uh, concentrated way. Now mm -hmm. there are, um, and I should mention. Um, two of the guiding thinkers of CESJ. One was one of our co-founders, Father William Faree, who was a scholar in uh, Pope Pius XI's 
concepts of social justice and the act of social justice. The other person who was a, really a, a, a key foundational thinker was Lewis Kelso, who was a lawyer, economist, and very successful corporate financier who figured out, well, if the rich are able to get rich in this particular way, why can't the poor? So of um, various approaches he developed, one has gotten into the law, employee stock ownership plans, which enable company or, or employees through this trust mechanism, the ESOP trust, to borrow for whatever the corporate corporation may need in terms of expansion or borrow to buy out the shares of, let's say, a retiring owner and repay that loan with the profits of the corporation itself. So this idea of, and this is done um, in many privately held companies, but they're corporations. A corporation is, you know, one is a limited number of specific individuals. The other opens it up to whoever, you know, wants to buy the shares. Um, I think another point is, you know, in terms of a corporate culture, maintaining that sense of humanity of everyone involved, you know, your workers, your shareholders, your customers, your suppliers, that's a key ethical and moral concern that every successful company or any company really should be thinking. And that's, that's the notion of looking to the common good, not that your corporation is going to be, you know, necessarily giving away this and that to various groups or supporting various causes. That is not its function, but that how it exists as a specific social tool must always operate with that sense of the common good of the people within it or affected, but then at the higher level, ultimately, you know, what are you doing on this planet? You know, are you making things more just or are you not? Right. Michael Graney, your follow-up on that. Well, I can answer this within the framework of Catholic social teaching with the caveat that even though I was, this is Catholic social teaching, it applies across the board universally because it is based on natural law, which is written in the hearts of every single human being and is based on the nature of God reflecting that humanity. We won't get into the uh, philosophical bit here, but it all starts with private property. Now, private property is actually two things. One, it is the absolute natural right every single human being has to be an owner. This is the right to property. The Catholic Church calls this the generic right of dominion, a really fancy term just to mean that every single person has the right to be an owner by nature, or you're not a human by definition. The other part is the one that everybody screws up. It's the rights of property. You know, this is the bundle of rights that define what I may own, how I may use it, uh, what, how I control it, and uh, what are my relations to other people with respect to this, to whatever it is that I own. These are the rights of property, otherwise known as the universal destination of all goods. A horrible way of describing it, because to most people, they think that, oh, universal destination of all goods, that means that everybody owns everything. Socialism. Right. You know, that's, it's just a very technical way of saying that whatever you own, you, when, however you use it, and what, even what I, whatever you own, you must use it in such a way that you don't harm society, other individuals, or even yourself. In other words, 
the goal or the final result of what you do with what you own should take into account a universal destination, not just yourself. I mean, a very complicated way of saying, just use what you have in the best way and don't hurt other people with it. Okay. All right. Michael Graney and Dawn Brohan joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. And we are talking about the moral basis for money. And Dawn and Michael are both with the Center for Economic and Social Justice. Um, ownership, Dawn. Ownership. What are you talking about? I mean, I, I go out, I go to work. All right. I want to uh, say at some point I'm going to. I'm going to, I want to know what you mean. Like, what should I own? How does it create wealth for me? How do I maybe generate income from it? Why is it so important? We're told nowadays, Joe Racinello, correct me if I'm wrong. We're told nowadays, rent everything. Don't own anything and you'll be happy. <laughs> um, I mean, I really want you guys, I'm going to start with Dawn and we're gonna, then we're going to hand it over to Mike. Like, it's an important concept. What do you mean by this? Let our audience at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network know. What are we talking about when we're talking about ownership. Okay, well, a very succinct way of answering you is in one of our slogans, I think it's behind Mike's head, own or be owned. And what that's talking about is the need for each of us to have power, because without power, someone else will control us, they'll control our lives, they'll can they'll tell us you're going to be happy, you know, <laughs> we'll give you what you need, and you'll be happy. Uh, no, human beings, in order to be free, must have their own basis of power. And by everyone having their own ac access to power, that's how we control the danger of power becoming concentrated, which is the world we live in right now. Is uh, There's power in so many different aspects of society has become concentrated in a few hands. So um, most people are living at the whim of someone else. They, they don't even see a way to control their own futures or shape their own futures. So when we talk about ownership, there's two aspects. One is economic, and I guess it would be legal as well. Ownership in terms of another way or a way of generating income. We can talk about it owning your own labor or owning um, you own your own body. Um, the things that you produce are yours. You may exchange them or get rid of them, but you, you have, that is a way of producing. But also if you own things that help create more goods and services, that's having ownership in what we would say is capital, which we, we, we would use Lewis Kelso's, um, his broad categories of labor or people, things or capital, what's used in the economic process in order to create goods and services that are exchanged. So capital, as Lewis Kelso would define it, is anything, it could be a robot, it could be artificial intelligence, it, it could be um, buildings, structures, rentable space, et cetera. Anything you use that you're going to produce a good or service to sell to other people or exchange. So when we own capital um, in the modern world, this becomes more and more critical to our, our independence as human beings because our labor may be rapidly replaced by much more efficient things. Uh, when you talk about, look at 
car manufacturers and you look at the assembly line, it is robots. You know, the whole room is robots. You may have a few. Scares, scares the crap out of me, Dawn. Yeah, I wonder yeah. if you're going to automate labor out of existence. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. And that is a very important point that the point of capital is to reduce the amount of labor that's needed. And, you know, when you think about it, if it's like before they had washing machines, did the people who were beating their clothes on a rock really love to wash things that way or you roll it through, you know, this thing and it, it's taken hours. So when you come up with technology to reduce the amount of human effort work in, in the form of economic work, that's a great thing if you own those tools. If you don't, if you are, if your labor is being replaced by those tools, you know, then you're looking at maybe no income or you're going to rely on charity or welfare. So it's very important from the economic standpoint. Here we're talking about how we satisfy our material. We that it means to produce, and that's how we generate our own income that we're entitled to in order to you know, buy the things we need or we, we want or what we need to develop. So owning productive things and the easiest way, you know, you, I think you asked the question, you know, what should I, as an individual, you know, what, what could I buy that will generate an income? Well, if I'm a farmer, um, for example, and I needed a tractor or let's say a mule, and I didn't have that right now, but I knew if I had that asset, I could produce more of my crop, sell it. I had customers waiting. I would have more profits. I would pay off my loan. So that's one way of an individual who knows how to use a specific tool getting a, a credit loan in order to buy that new asset in order to generate more goods and services and earn uh, income from it. Most people, I would have no idea what to do with a tractor or a robot for that matter. You know, it's like, what good would that be for me to buy that individual asset? But fortunately, and this is where the corporation is such a great tool if it's used correctly, within a corporation, you can have skilled uh, workers, skilled management, marketers, distributors, and they know how to use the robot. They know how to bring it together with the, the workers, produce their goods and services and sell them. If I own a share of that corporation, then I own a portion of the income that's produced by the corporation, which uses the robot now or whatever tools. So in, um, in terms of well, what we call the Economic Democracy Act is a way of reforming our money system, our credit system, our tax system, inheritance system, so that voluntarily uh, people can become owners. They will have equal access to the money and credit to acquire capital that will pay for itself out of its own future earnings. So that you could be someone in a coma and you, would, you could still be an owner. You, know, you can set up all the legal mechanisms. Those assets or that, those corporate shares are yours. You may have someone who's a guardian or something making sure they're used properly, but all the income generated is your income. So it may be used to, you know, for my, my hospital care or whatever else, I can be a newborn infant, you know, just born and by George, I'm already, you know, now entitled to an annual allotment of credit to be invested on my behalf so that when I reach 18, 
by George, I have assets, I have capital assets, and I've been receiving dividend income from those assets, you know, after the, the loan was repaid. So we would say in the modern age, let's look at these tools, which could be our worst enemy. If they're not used correctly, they, they will starve us to death. You know, they will make us turn us into slaves if we don't own them. So again, it's right. own or be owned. Right. Michael Graney, what are your thoughts uh, on, on ownership? Well, to get back to, you know, the whole evil corporation bit, the big problem there, and Don hinted at this, is that what you have is a separation of ownership and control in such a way that those controlling it can deprive those who own it of their basic rights. Mike, Michael, let me ask you a question real quick. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I think it's important, okay? And I think Joe will back me up on this because that's, that, that's the field that he's in. These companies come public with that already built into their covenants. That if any of the four of us went out and bought a share of XYZ Corporation in the open market, we don't have the rights that other shareholders have, even though they might be common shareholders, but they're insiders or they're this or they're that. All right. Um, I, 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 is what I'm saying correct? Because if you told me I have sure. ownership, in a, go ahead, Mike, go well, ahead. In a sense, uh, as, as a shareholder, you have exactly the same rights as every other shareholder. What you don't have is the inside track of the big shareholders who can control the votes in such a way that they can actually deprive minority shareholders of their rights. Sounds like the Senate, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because one, one of the points in Catholic social teaching with respect to the exercise of rights, and Pius XII pointed this out in his Christmas message of 1943, and again in an encyclical that I can't remember the name of, but that a, a basic principle of law and frankly of common sense is that you never define the exercise of a right in such a way as to nullify the underlying natural right. In other words, Oh, you can own this, but we're not going to let you do anything with it. That might, then basically you don't have the right, do you? Now, what happened with the corporation, which oddly enough, the modern corporation was specifically designed in, a, in such a way as to allow workers to become owners. But that's another whole story. Uh, back in 1919, uh, the Dodge brothers you may have heard of Dodge Motor Company. Well, that came later because of this. They wanted more dividends from Henry Ford. They were the second largest block of shares. They owned the second largest block of shares in the Ford Motor Company. Uh, Henry Ford said, no, I own the majority block. Therefore, anything I say goes. And I can deprive you of dividends. I can deprive you of control. I can deprive you of anything I want simply because I'm the majority owner. And you have no rights when it comes to what the fact that I own more than you do. The Dodge brothers, of course, sued. And the Michigan State Supreme Court on appeal said that, okay, Henry Ford, you're right because you own 51% or more of the, of the Ford Motor Company. The Dodge brothers have no rights at all to receive dividends or to exercise any control whatsoever. This was called the first test of something called the business judgment rule. Now, the business judgment rule is one of the dumbest laws, you know, dumbest legal principles in history. It's 
almost as bad as what came out of Scott versus Sanford and Roe versus Wade, which is, and the business judgment rule is this, if a shareholder wants his dividends, he has to make the case that the company does not need that money, which logically, if you took logic, says you have to prove a negative. Mm. That is logically impossible. You can't prove that the corporation doesn't need that money. The corporation should have to prove that it does. Not, I mean, this is why when you go into a court of law, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty, because otherwise you'd have to prove a negative. How do you prove you're innocent? You can't. So that the principle in both civil and canon law is you are presumed innocent. Well, the business judgment rule presumes, in effect, that the shareholder is guilty until, hey, I want my money. Well, the Dodge brothers decided to get rid of their shares in Ford Motor Company, set up their own company, came up with one of the best automobiles up to that time that had ever been built, the 26 Dodge. This proved that the Model T was a piece of junk at that point. And Henry Ford had to shut down the plant for a year, came up with the Model A finally, but lost a huge chunk of the world market for automobiles simply because he didn't want to give owners, minority owners their rights. Michael, let's leave it there for a second because we only have a few minutes left. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Dawn Brohon, Michael Graney uh, from the uh, Center for Economic and Social Justice. We've been talking about money. We've been talking about economics. We've been talking about shares in corporations. That'll get us all in trouble. Joe Racinello, we have time for probably uh, one more question. I want to blend our AI conversation with what is the common good. <clears throat> um, the common good in, in my understanding, would be taught by God. God is, is a supreme being. He, we are a creation, and we have responsibilities. Also, the common good, if you weren't religious, you could say, I found this in a family, in a family structure, which is the microcosm of all societies. But I think in our society, which is pluralistic, there's a different idea of the common good. People have it all over the place. I believe in this, you believe in that. And I think that's a fundamental problem with a lot of what we've talked about, and I'd like you to address it. But AI is a danger. It's going to be more of a danger as time moves on. I think the folks at Davos know this, and they're looking ahead because they're the ones that are going to be using it. I'll just give you a quick example, and then let's break that down from a common good perspective. Garbage pickup. No longer do you have garbage, man. You have the big crane now. It's picking up the garbage. That's AI. If we're in the city council, the common good for us may be get rid of the garbage, man. But the common good for the garbage man means I need a job. How do you differentiate that in a pluralistic society when people's now, morals are all over the place? Now, unfortunately, we don't have an unlimited amount of time, and we are coming up to the end of the show. Dawn, it's a very important question. That's a topic for another conversation for you guys to come back. But let's let's give a little bit of of, of uh, talk about it a little bit. Dawn, you have a bit of about a minute, and then Michael, you have about a minute. That is a huge question. I, I think it, it it does come back. Um, well, one problem having so many def different definitions of the common good makes it hard for us to focus on how it, you know, is this means, this interconnected means for each of us to develop fully. Um, so I think that we have to go back to the moral basis of society and social tools, and that is the dignity, empowerment, and development of each person as a unique creation of 
God. And so if we keep that in mind, then the ideas, for example, of ownership, each of us must take ownership for our actions. Uh, we must take ownership of the common good, meaning how it's cared for and structured, and in, in a sense, uh, take ownership of our lives with respect to other people and the world. Absolutely. Michael Graney, comments? Yes. I would say that, you know, philosophically defined, the common good is the good common to every single human person, which is defined in Aristotelian Thomist philosophy, sorry about that, as this analogously complete capacity to become more fully human, to become virtuous. This is the same for every single human being. Now, what we usually speak of in society as the common good is that vast network of institutions within which we as Vert, uh, as human beings become virtuous or vicious if we freely choose to go that way. Now, if an institution is badly structured so that it inhibits or prevents us from becoming virtuous, we have to organize and restructure that institution. When we set, talk about the, the common good, we don't want to do what, unfortunately, the other Joe just did and define it in terms of common goods. This is a serious mistake that Aquinas warned against. You know, publicly owned things that we, you know, we happen to use for the sake of expedience that are publicly owned. The, the common good is whatever helps us to become virtuous. A very different concept. And it's even Jacques Maritain made that mistake at times, so don't feel be embarrassed. <laughs> Let's, uh, oh, Michael, well, we're going to have to leave it there. I mean, like we said, the first time we got together, we know we could talk for hours. I think this was an important conversation. I learned something from it. I know Joe Rissanello learned something from it. Dawn, very quickly, where could, where could folks out there find out more about what you got going on at the Center for Economic and Social Justice? Well, the first thing we would lead them towards is our, the book that Mike and I just co-authored, The Greater Reset, which deals with what is the uh, an alternative to The Great Reset, which was a product of uh, the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. And you can go to TAN, T-A-N, books.com in order to get your copy. And this deals with the moral basis of money and um, all social institutions. But again, if you would like to have information about our organization, go to cesj.org. Awesome. Michael Graney, Dawn Brohorn, thanks again for coming on and having a great conversation. We know you're going to be back at some point in the near future. Um, and thank you all out there for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith in the New York City metropolitan area. Download the app, share it with your friends, share this conversation with your friends. Okay, you can get it on the app and all of our uh, the station's other content. Please follow Joe and I at the Frontline TV on YouTube, the Frontline TV on YouTube. Like, subscribe, share, and do all that fun stuff. And remember, until the next time, that our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>